So uh, this evening I'm going to offer some reflections on compassion, uh, which is one of the Brahma Viharas, but um, not so much going to be talking about compassion practice. We'll be getting to that over the days to come, but more speaking about compassion in terms of it being a cultivation of being. So opening with this quote uh, by the Dalai Lama, which I think is really rad. <laughs> Compassion is the radicalism of our time. We can reject everything else, religion, ideology, all received wisdom, but we cannot escape the necessity of love and compassion. This then is my true religion, my simple faith. In this sense, there is no need for temples or churches, for mosques or synagogues, no need for complicated philosophy, doctrine, or dogma. Our own heart, our own mind is the temple. The doctrine is compassion love for others and respect for their rights and dignity, no matter who or what they are. Ultimately, these are all we need. So long as we practice these in our daily lives, then no matter if we are learned or unlearned, whether we believe in Buddha or God, or follow some other religion or none at all, as long as we have compassion for others, and conduct ourselves with restraint out of a sense of responsibility, there is no doubt we will be happy. So asking you to consider that this practice that we are engaging in and have been engaged with more intensively and intentionally this last week and a half is a practice that is life-giving and restoring. Compassion is the armor, the armor that serves us to keep us well on this life walk in these gendered bodies, with our ethnicities and cultures and socioeconomic conditions, orientations, social locations, history and ancestry. Compassion is not a state, nor is it an emotion. It's an understanding. Given that the entire path of awakening is to bring dukkha to an end, you may consider it wise and skillful to understand and cultivate this heart quality of compassion. Compassion is a pathway of cultivation with the power to liberate our hearts from greed, aversion, delusion, illusion, and confusion. Compassion asks us to move from a place of knowing based upon views, fears, need, and anxiety to a place of not knowing. So compassion, or karuna, and it's karuna in Sanskrit and Pali, actually, 
or empathy. This is the dictionary now. The wish that others be free from suffering as distinguished from loving kindness. Metta, the wish that others be happy. So metta, which we've been working with, and cultivating the wish for others to be happy, uh, to have ease. It's more of a generating of energetic quality. And there is, a, although there is an activity in emanating or offering meta, there is a passive quality to that. It does not call upon us to make any particular response as we cultivate without distinction offering meta to other beings. Compassion, on the other hand, is the wish that beings be free from suffering. When used as a noun, it defines a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. It is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So there's an action that follows the arising of empathy for others who are suffering. And we include, or I include, ourselves in the others. So checking in, let me just read a few words that generate this a few synonyms that generate this kind of being state of uh, the desire to contribute to the alleviation of suffering for others. How does this land in your body as you hear these words? Empathy, grace, humanity, kindness, tenderness, humanness, soft-heartedness, yearning, heart. The Buddha taught that all humans are alike in their desire for happiness and love. This is so whether or not we use unskillful or skillful means in an attempt to find balance, peace, and happiness. The confidence strength, and personal authority to right ourselves when we encounter suffering and pain comes from a cultivated heart and mind. Cultivation of compassion trains us and prepares us to meet the suffering and pain we encounter in relationship to ourselves and with other beings. Compassion is the responsive movement of the heart. There is a response to a condition, a circumstance, a circumstance of suffering. It is said that the heart quivers in response to suffering and that it is an energetic response, not a mental idea. And we've been doing a lot of work with mental ideas in the last week and a half. And Although we have also been practicing metta, or many, if not all of us, have been practicing metta. Um, I was talking to Aaron about this, and I've always held it that metta is a, a quality that is most um, um, 
honored and respected, but somehow when there is not the teaching of the metta um, or the, the practicing of the metta along with actually, I think the all the Brahma Viharas, but particularly compassion, there is a, uh, can be a tendency for it to continue to be up here as opposed to dropping into the body with gravitas and giving some real groundedness to that metta. A way to think of it is that compassion lies at the heart of what it means to be fully human. And it is what allows us to be at peace in the midst of pain and turmoil. At the heart of compassion is the invitation, the invitation to turn towards suffering. Just as the longing for love, safety, and respect is a universal longing and a human story, so too is pain the universal and inescapable story. Suffering is part of the story of our bodies, of all bodies, illness, frailty, aging, and pain are present in every life. In these moments of suffering, we are most often convinced <laughs> we are the only ones that ever felt this way. However, if we can find the courage to open our eyes and our hearts, we can see mirrored in the eyes of others the pain and suffering we all experience at some time or another in our lives. Our minds can be filled and tormented by guilt, shame, judgment, doubt, and confusion, and we create the story of a self that feels separate and apart from all other selves, unworthy and inadequate. When we look around with clear comprehension, we can come to know that this pain, too, is part of the universal story, not unique to us alone, and the potential of every human mind. This seeing that there are no defenses strong enough to protect us from change, sorrow, or pain is not a sentence to be depressed and sorrowful or to deny the moments of joy and happiness and delight that we also experience in our lives. It is actually an opportunity to reflect on what truly matters in this one precious life we have to live. We often find ourselves given the opportunity to engage with the task of finding the humility and the courage to open ourselves to our own and others' difficult and distressing circumstances and conditions. We come to understand through practice and investigation, the first dimension of dukkha, the dukkha of dukkha, the pain of pain. A broken arm hurts. The loss of a loved one hurts. Aging brings frailty. Illness is not imaginary, and on and on. The second dimension of dukkha the dukkha of the essential instability of a world made of conditions and processes we cannot control. We can lose everything 
we count on for security and certainty. The threads of impermanence are woven into every aspect of life. Wishing that none of you would have to come to this realization and understanding, but knowing that some of you already have through the same process as I. Um, I was talking to one of you in an interview the other day, and I said that uh, there was this period of my life that I call my two years of living dangerously. And in an 18-month period, basically, um, let's see. So uh, my husband, you've heard some of his story, uh, he fell and tore the meniscus and had to have surgery. And two months after that, my father died. And then two months after that, my husband lost his job. And then two months after that, I was informed I was going to lose my job. And about four months after that, we lost our house. This was during the recession of eight, eight or nine years ago. Some people experienced it as a depression. And then three months after that, we moved in with my mom, which as a grown-ass woman <laughs> was not something that I was planning on happening. But I think by now you all know that actually it turned out to be one of the best things that could have happened as we're now living with this very generous and grace-filled woman of 94. But the thing about that, as I described it to people, that period of time for me, um, were two things. One, I said that, and those of you, I don't know if some of you attract people, but you know, when you run hurdles, you're always preparing for the next hurdle as you're coming down from the hurdle you just jumped over. And I said, this 18-month period felt like I was running hurdles. And I could hardly, hardly catch my breath. And in retrospect, um, I'm really clear that what supported me and pulled me through um, was this turning compassion towards myself and my husband and the people that fired us. And, uh, all the various components of this experience. We often find ourselves given the opportunity to engage with the task of, oh, I'm sorry, I read that already. With practice and understanding, we come to know that change is woven into everything. Everything we feel, everything we touch, and experience, as well as for those we love and those we disdain. It is neither positive or negative, good or bad. It simply is. The third dimension of dukkha is the domain of reactivity, reactivity arising from confusion or wrong view. Suffering not the experience of pain, is talked about in the suttas through the simile of the second arrow. Some of you have heard this, for sure. Um, so there is the pain that comes from some, some condition or some cause, putting your hand on the stove and burning it, breaking a leg, losing a loved one, losing a pet. These are all painful experiences that we have. But what we do as human beings 
unlike, I said to somebody, unlike our animal brothers and sisters, because we have language, we then go on and make up all of these elaborate stories which we then lay on the altar of suffering. You know, animals have all painful stuff happening all the time and they just do life. You know, they don't go and... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot we can learn by observing our animal brothers and sisters. And there's a real paying attention that we can give to this phenomena that us human beings have access to, which is language and how that plays. If you think about it, I don't know, a good percentage of the time that we spend during the day in this practice is deconstructing the language that we've constructed in our minds to try to explain, divert from, or avoid feeling suffering, feeling pain. And that's where the suffering comes, not in the pain itself. Compassion and understanding arise simultaneously. They nourish and sustain each other. On this path of awakening, there is no charge, meaning you're not being charged, to annihilate the self, to improve the self, or to disdain the self. There is only the profound invitation to liberate our hearts and minds from all fixed views of self. Looking inward, just as we see that our bodies and minds are processes, so too is our sense of self. Christina Feldman states, or uh, has a quote which I really, really like, releasing the tendency to cling and to identify with the changing processes and events of our bodies, hearts, and minds. We liberate ourselves to be the fluid, changing, responsive human beings we have the potential to be. The freedom from identification and fixed views does not result in chaos or dysfunction, but in a present moment stillness and awareness that is the root of compassion. I know it's not easy. It takes intention, persistence, patience, and practice to move towards holding compassion as a core value and creating it as a way of being. The first step in developing compassion is being able to recognize to open to and to acknowledge that pain and suffering exists for everybody, everywhere, at some time or another. Some suffering is intense and terrible, and some is quiet and small, but it is all suffering just the same. Of course, suffering is not all there is in life, though at times it can seem that is the case. It is a thread that needs to be recognized clearly and ground us in the awareness that we are all connected and moving along in our lives, living what it means to be human. Denial, resistance, aversion, turning away from this fact and seeing with an obtuse mind 
only prolongs and aggravates the inevitable struggle that can arise when we do not see clearly things as they are. Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about the balanced way, and we've been spending a lot of time and will continue to spend a lot of time in terms of cultivating awareness and establishing it. He says, like a bird in flight borne by its two wings, the practice of Dhamma is sustained by two contrasting qualities whose balanced development is essential to straight and steady progress. These two qualities are renunciation and compassion. As a doctrine of renunciation, the Dhamma points out that the path to liberation is a personal course of training that centers on the gradual control and mastery of desire or clinging, the root cause of suffering. As a teaching of compassion, the Dhamma bids us to avoid harming others, to act for their welfare, and to help realize the Buddha's own great resolve to offer the world the way to freedom. In our attempt to follow the Dhamma, one or the other of these twin cardinal virtues will have to be given prominence, depending on our temperament and circumstances. However, for monks and householders alike, success in developing the path requires that both receive due attention and that deficiencies in either gradually be remedied. Over time, we will find that the two, though tending in different directions, eventually are mutually reinforcing. Compassion impels us towards greater renunciation as we see how our own greed and attachment make us a danger to others and renunciation impels us toward greater compassion. Since the relinquishing of craving enables us to exchange the narrow perspectives of the ego for the wider perspectives of a mind of boundless sympathy. Held together in this mutually strengthening tension, renunciation and compassion contribute to the wholesome balance of the Buddhist path and to the completeness of its final fruit. You know, this final fruit, the fruit of practice. Um, I was talking to someone in a session or two, and um, they were wondering and wandering and compelled by how their practice, at least for the moment up to now, um, here on retreat, hasn't been filled with a lot of tumultuous, volcanic, eruptive kind of experiences. And I said to this person, well, that's a good thing. What the hell have you been doing for so long? If you have been practicing for years and years and the quality of attention of mind to understand the various vicissitudes of this practice aren't rendering you with some really good fruit, then what are you doing? Like, think about that, really. To be complacent and passive and, un, you know, falling into this kind of uh, habituated way of being in practice, like wake up. Wake up to the understanding of the gift that it is to have come across this path and to be able to engage in the environments and the places and the spaces to cultivate 
and fill your body with this understanding and wisdom. Did I say what the hell? I forgot this was being taped. (laughs) And they're not here tonight, so they're going to say I did it just because they're not here, my colleagues. (laughs) (sighs) So this practice we're engaged with, why? Why even bother? Bhante Gunaratana says, meditation is called the great teacher. It is the cleansing crucible fire that works slowly but surely through understanding. The greater our understanding, the more flexible and tolerant, the more compassionate we can be. We feel love towards others because we understand them, and we understand others because we have understood ourselves. We have looked deeply inside and seen self-illusion and our own human failings, seen our own humanity, and learned to forgive and to love. When we have learned compassion for ourselves, compassion for others is automatic. A practice meditator who has achieved a profound understanding of the inevitable will relate to the world with a deep, and uncritical love. Meditation is like cultivating new land. To make a field out of forest, first you have to clear the trees and pull out the stumps. Then you till the soil and fertilize it. Sow your seed and harvest your crop. To cultivate the mind, first you clear out the various irritants that are in the way, pulling them out by the root so they won't grow back. Then you fertilize, you pump energy and discipline into the mental soil. Then you sow the seed and harvest the crops of faith, morality, mindfulness, and wisdom. A purpose of meditation is personal transformation. Meditation changes one's character by a process of sensitization, by training us to be deeply aware of our own thoughts, our own words, our own deeds. Arrogance evaporates and antagonism dries up. Mind becomes still and calm. Life smooths out. You become prepared to meet the ups and downs of existence. Tension, fear, and worry are reduced. Restlessness recedes, and passion is moderated. Life becomes a glide instead of a struggle. All this happens through understanding. Meditation sharpens concentration and thinking power. Piece by piece, our own subconscious motives and mechanics become clear to us. Intuition sharpens, the precision of our thoughts increases, and gradually we come to a direct knowledge of things as they really are, without prejudice and without illusion. Choosing to bear suffering or turn towards it takes an act of courage. But once we do, we have initiated the process of inner transformation. 
Perhaps a clarifying point is that the opposite of suffering is not happiness. It is non-suffering. Non-suffering is having a relaxed, composed mind that is fully present with whatever is occurring in the moment. And it is the capacity to be in relationship to whatever is arising such that we are able to respond from our deepest intentions. In each moment, we are always getting started. If we can bring both awareness and wisdom to each moment in a continuous and sustained way, then nature will take over. This will then give us the momentum to move forward with our practice with only effort required, being a genuine interest in seeing what meditation can uncover and bring to our lives. Be aware, reveal some wisdom, and hold it all with compassion. The Buddha said at one point that if we truly loved ourselves, we would never harm another. Because if we harm another, it is in some way diminishing who we are. It is taking away from rather than adding to our lives. Just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. Sharon Salzberg states, it is tempting to undertake a meditation practice or path of development with the same kind of clinging motivation with which we might take on anything else. Perhaps we feel empty inside. We feel bereft in some ways. We feel we are not good enough, and so we undertake spiritual practice to ameliorate all of that. Spiritual practice is not about having and getting. It is more about compassion towards ourselves and towards others. It is not about assuming a new self-image or manufactured persona. It is about being compassionate naturally out of what we see, what we understand. Compassion is like a mirror into which we can always look. It is like a stream that steadily carries us. It is like a cleansing fire that continually transforms us. Compassion for ourselves is the basis for our practice of compassion towards others. It is impossible to practice genuine compassion for others without the foundation of self-compassion. So, you know, I'm talking about this compassion and I'm talking about um, fairly intense or extreme experiences, but sometimes it shows up really subtly. And you just have to be looking for the opportunity to bring forward this uh, beingness of compassion. So night before last, Aaron and I were hanging out. That was our day off. And uh, we were staying in a hotel in Walnut Creek, California. Um, and they were playing music downstairs, jazz, and I love music. So I was, Aaron, let's go downstairs. Let's go downstairs. Let's listen to some music. So we went downstairs and we were listening to this music, and it was a, a woman singing. She was fantastic. And 
after the set was over, they introduced this older man. He was very old. I didn't know how old he was at the time, but uh, he, he was in his 80s. He looked to be in his 80s. Um, and he got up there and he sang some jazz with the quartet that was backing her up. And he was really phenomenal. Um, and after his set, he sat down and Aaron and I are talking and eating and she was sitting facing. I, I couldn't see what was going on behind me. And this 80-something-year-old white man walks up to our table. And he starts talking to me about all the black great jazz singers and how he has lived his life um, being aware of the richness of the black culture. And then he went on to talk about, I, I don't know where this came from, he started talking about the Black Negro Baseball League. And I said to him, so I said, oh yeah, I know about that. I have a sweatshirt upstairs with monarchs on it. That's, that's who they are. And he couldn't even hear that as he continued to want to educate me <laughs> about my culture. There was a time when I would have become enraged behind that. <laughs> like, why do you think you have the right to come over to me telling me about me? You know, is it gender? Is it race? Is it age? However, <laughs> as a result of the work that I have done, <laughs> I was able to understand in that moment that here this human being who had an appreciation for the history and culture from which I come, was trying to connect with me. And later on, I went to Aaron. I said, Aaron, did you realize that whole interaction? You know, because it was more than what made the eye there. <laughs> and we talked about it. And you know, there is a way of, that's responsiveness to a search situation or a circumstance as opposed to reaction to a situation or circumstance. And it didn't take anything from me to extend this understanding and compassion to this older gentleman. There is a degree of, uh, we talked a lot about purification and the other night I think it was, I added in detoxification that we're engaged with in these uh, four weeks or eight weeks that we're together. So keeping it simple and be generous with appreciation and gratitude. So I'm saying, can we spend some time cultivating compassion? Like the time we spend cultivating dislikes, judgment, greed, anger, and ignorance? His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, each of us in our own way can try to spread compassion into people's hearts. Western civilizations these days place great importance on filling the human brain with knowledge. But no one seems to care about filling the human heart with compassion. With the cultivation of the qualities that incline the heart towards compassion, the compassionate heart-mind builds the capacity to withstand the turmoil that is often the result of clinging or any of the other visitors that can drop in when the mind becomes overwhelmed and clouded. A cultivated heart-mind increases our tolerance and willingness to meet challenges and difficulties and to truly know that this moment is like this. 
unaffected by the storms created by greed, aversion, and delusion. And when affected, as will happen, we are able to regain balance and to stabilize our hearts and minds with efficiency, efficacy, and ease. Most often, it sets in motion a trajectory for growth, forward movement, and healing, leading us closer and closer to freedom. When we feel broken, at our limit, when we hit bottom, there is an opening there where we get to see the possibility of living life in a different way. Trauma, trouble, difficulties, or struggles are transformative. It demands that we become creative at moving forward and to heal when we can, be awake to that sometimes gentle nudge and others times unmistakable push and heed the opening. Rumi says, keep your eye on the bandaged places. That's where the light enters. Even more difficult than acknowledging pain is opening to it. It's not easy and it takes courage and fortitude to establish an appropriate and rational relationship to pain and suffering. We may have to do it bit by bit, a little at a time, without forcing or being contrived. We also don't want to construct the illusion that we can somehow control the suffering. When we do not, fe when we do not feel in control, often what shows up is righteous anger or indignation, fear, grief, or pity. Are you all starting to hear what's happening both with ourselves and in the world today? The near enemies of compassion. The near enemy of compassion is pity. It can look like or feel like or appear similar to compassion but there's an aspect or a component to it of feeling superior to or in control of one's own life and feeling that the other person's suffering is because they lack control. Another of the uh, near enemies has been coined or was brought into my attention by Larry Yang who identifies another near enemy being codependency. The need or drive to fix the difficult emotion or person, to make suffering go away or make it better. He says, be compassionate to where you are. This is the process of the heart stretching beyond old patterns of defensiveness and reactivity. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is the enjoyment of other people's suffering. We have some evidence of that these days. Even though it is clearly an opposite state from compassion, when we are lost in aversion, it can become hard to detect. Anger and hatred, outrage, fear and grief are all similar to compassion but compassion they are not. They are varying states of aversion. 
that actually points to what may be useful both as we turn the practice to ourselves but also as we turn the practice outward to the world. To be cognizant and aware through the cultivation of strength of mind and clarity of heart to our reactivity to circumstances and situations outside of ourselves, which does not lead to skillful means for engaging, but rather when coming from a place of clarity to be able to be responsive and to decide and have the choice to look to see what is the appropriate response to this condition or situation or circumstance. And sometimes the appropriate response is to do nothing. When we have a bright, clear mind and can bring forward compassion as the trembling of the heart, it arises also with the quality of equanimity. Imagine a mind where there is no bitter condemning judgment of oneself or of others. There are two ways of understanding the unfolding of compassion. One is to see compassion as the outcome of a path that can be cultivated and developed. Through investigation, we can learn to attend to those moments when we close and contract in the face of suffering, in the face of anger, fear, alienation, and ask ourselves the question, what difference empathy, forgiveness, patience, and tolerance would make here. The second way of understanding compassion is to see it as the natural embodiment of wisdom. Deep insight can reveal the emptiness of the notion of self and others. Compassion for ourselves is often neglected in spiritual practice. The ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity towards ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self, from an awareness of who we are that honors our true capacities and fears, our own feelings and integrity, along with others. It is never based on fear or pity, but it is a deep response of the heart based on dignity, integrity, and well-being of every single creature. It is a spontaneous response to the suffering and pain that we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of the universal experience of loss and pain. As our own hearts open and are healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way. At times, compassion may give rise to action, 
and at times it will not. It does not arise in order to solve problems, yet out of compassion flows action, whatever it need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has the fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things. The power of the compassionate heart, of genuine compassion, to transform the pain we encounter is extraordinary. Compassion allows life to pass through our hearts with its paradoxes of love, joy, and pain. When we hear the call of the compassionate heart, we give what we can to stop the wars, to protect the children, to heal the environment, to transform prejudice and oppression, to care for the poor. And yet true compassion also loves ourselves respects our own needs, honors our limits, and our true capacity. When genuine compassion and wisdom come together, we honor, love, praise, and include ourself as well as others. Instead of holding the ideal that we should be able to give endlessly with compassion for all beings except me, we find compassion for all beings, including ourselves. Audre Lorde states, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. The perception of separation between self and others transforms and drops away as we cultivate the habit of self-care as a wise way to spend our effort and as a doorway into connection. It is also an act of generosity to take the steps and measures to ensure that we are well. We can come to this recognition through the understanding of this path and the application of clearly seeing and cultivating in courage and wisdom the mind-heart. When genuine compassion arises, it moves through us as grace, bringing together a tenderness and fearlessness that could never come by any other means. Become kinder. Take the time to notice how things are and then to choose what the appropriate action or response. Remain committed to turning and seeing suffering and the end of suffering. This, in and of itself, may become the greatest act of compassion. I receive all of life with thanksgiving. I have gratitude for everything that has ever occurred 
to bring me to this moment. I give thanks for the joys and the sufferings, the moments of peace and the flashes of anger, the compassion and the indifference, the roar of my courage and the cold sweat of my fear. I accept gratefully the entirety of my past and my present life. Jonathan Lockwood Huey. So now I'm going to read you a story, a real story that's part of a collection of one of my Dharma sisters. We did CDL4 together, Margot McLaughlin, who actually is Canadian and lives in Canadian. And she, connected, she collected international stories from around the world. So the one that I'm going to read to you is entitled, All Things Are Connected, and it's from Zaire. Long ago, a cruel chieftain ruled a remote village in Africa. He was a tyrant who demanded that his orders be obeyed or pain of death would follow. Everyone, everyone lived in fear of him except for an elderly grandmother who had lived long and seen much. She was the only person in the village brave enough to tell the chief the truth. The village was located near a large marsh inhabited by numerous amphibians and insects. The people were sung to sleep each night by the gentle croaking of frogs. Cribbit, cribbit, cribbit. We hear some of those out here. <laughs> One night, the chief awoke from a bad dream and couldn't get back to sleep. Cribbit, cribbit, cribbit was all he heard. Because he was in a foul mood, the frog's song wasn't at all soothing. It was most irritating. Cribbit, cribbit, cribbit. Quiet, cried the chief. I want all the frogs to stop croaking. I demand silence, and I want it now. The frogs weren't used to taking orders from humans and kept on singing. Cribbit, cribbit, cribbit. The frogs kept him awake for the rest of the night, and the chief wanted revenge. He called the people together early the next morning and said, the frogs dissipated me. Go to the marsh with your sticks and kill them. If I hear the croak of a single frog tonight, I'll turn my revenge upon you. All the villagers, except for the old grandmother, grabbed their sticks and ran to the marsh. Since you are so old and slow, I'll allow you to stay in the village, said the chief. And since you are so foolish in your demands, I'll tell you what is true, said the grandmother. <laughs> All things are connected. What does that mean, asked the chief. You will see, replied the brave woman. You will soon see. A strange silence engulfed the village that night. Without the song of the frogs to lull them to sleep, the villagers were restless. The chief, however, 
slept soundly, and was convinced that he had made the right decision. Several days later, another sound was heard in the village. Mosquitoes came in swarms and bit everyone in their sleep. The chief awoke in anger, battling a thousand mosquitoes away from his head. Leave me alone, he cried. Get out of my house or I'll have you killed too. The mosquitoes answered by buzzing even louder and biting him again and again. The following morning, the chief told his people to return to the marsh and kill all the mosquitoes. It was an impossible task, however, as there were far too many insects. Without frogs to eat the larvae, the mosquito population rapidly increased. Thousands upon thousands were hatched each day, and now they rule the marsh and everything nearby. The village swarmed with hungry mosquitoes, and the animals, as well as the people, suffered. The villagers secretly packed up their belongings and moved far away during the night. Now the chief had no one to rule over. At last, he understood what the old grandmother had meant. All things are connected. Cribbit, cribbit, cribbit. Gulp. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings find healing. May all beings find peace. May all beings be held in compassion. May you have a good enough night. Uh, It's now an opportunity to do some walking and to come back in for chanting with Rachel leading us uh, at nine. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.